This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Nick Flynn, author of the poetry collection, I Will Destroy You. It seems like it's an essential conundrum with writing. Does it bring one closer to some sort of a emotional state, or is it a way to sort of keep the emotion at arm's distance? Yeah, it's, it's such a hard question. It's because it's, you know, both seem to be equally true. We'll hear more from Nick Flynn in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be a part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. One of the best benefits of becoming a Patreon member is that you can listen to First Draft ad-free and pitch-free. You will no longer hear me asking you to join the First Draft community because you'll already be a member. And for that, I thank you by getting you to the interview faster. No pleas from me, no ads. But there's more. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. And then there's little extras I offer at random. It takes a lot of energy and love to put this show together every week, not to mention equipment, time, and electricity. Your donation helps keep this show going. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. So if First Draft is a part of your life, please contribute to keep the dialogue going. I know that right now it's unlikely that you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There's a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of more than 200 First Draft shows. Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on similar ones that you can dig into. And please rate this show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Nick Flynn, author of five collections of poetry and three memoirs, including Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, which won the Penn Martha Albrand Award and was adapted into the film Being Flynn. He teaches at the University of Houston and lives in New York. His latest collection, I Will Destroy You, focuses on issues of addiction, fatherhood, redemption, and art. The poems bring up questions about how to live in the moment, what things we invite into our lives that can destroy or save us, mortality, societal racism, and memory. The narratives and tropes appear intimately tied to Nick Flynn's life as a recovering addict and survivor of his mother's suicide and his father's homelessness, along with insights into being a father and husband. We began the discussion with Nick Flynn sharing his thoughts about this question that I asked him. So when you write, are you going more into emotion or further away from an emotion? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's a big question. <laughs> Yes, yeah, that's a really hard question. That sort of almost seems like an essential conundrum with writing. Does it bring one closer to some sort of a emotional state, or is it a way to sort of keep the emotion at arm's distance? Yeah, it's, it's such a hard question. It's because it's you know both 
seem to be equally true. And I think I think that basically for me, any any of the work I do is the hardest part of it is trying to navigate emotional energy. To me, that's why I go to art. I try to figure out like what that is. Like it seems like the most difficult project is to somehow navigate emotional energy. So in order to write anything, I have to do a lot of work ahead of time, psychic work ahead of time, prep work, which includes meditation, includes writing down dreams, it includes doing a therapy, it includes you know, certain like uh, 12-step programs, and this includes yoga. There's also the things that I do in order to be ready in that moment to write. And I only have about an hour of creative time a day, and the rest is sort of just trying to navigate uh, or to trying to uh, uh, get to the place where I can use that time best. Whether the writing actually brings me close to the emotion or somehow trying to sort of like uh, bring it outside myself in a way that will uh, distance me from it, it's really impossible to say. Like it, that's that's it really is a central problem. That's why I think there's a lot in this book where I sort of I question that. I sort of say, you know, that, that this. I think I say at one point these words after all, which are meant to replace us. One of the themes I picked out, not just not meditation per se, but sort of the idea of Buddhism and clinging and dissolution. I thought were mm-hmm. ran through your poems, and also mm-hmm. this idea. I think. It's in the epigraph about sort of being consumed by fire. So I was thinking about consumption and dissolution and clinging all kind of in the same vessel, so to speak. So in some ways, when you're consumed by something, you can't be detached from it. And so Mm -hmm. it seems like these poems and probably your life and maybe that path of, of being on recovery as a constant part of your life, as a constant job, is being on the precipice. The recovery stuff, like, you know, therapy stuff, recovery stuff, you know, yoga, like all those things are, they don't feel like they're on the precipice to me. Like they feel like they're, like at a certain point, at the beginning when you're, when you're sort of crossing from maybe from one side to the other, it feels like a precipice. Because it's like, this is like a, you know, you're trying on something different. You're trying a new way to do it. Like you go from being, you know, an addict being sober, there's there's a there is a precipice that you cross. Uh, but once you be, it becomes a daily practice, it's not a precipice anymore. It's it's more of a I guess you just call it this life. It's just like this sort of expansion. Uh, yet to go back to those moments, to sort of the edges of those, I guess is that what that's where the precipice is. It's going to like this edge of sort of like pushing to the edge of uh, where we're comfortable at the moment. You know that that is you know part of what I do in this book, I guess. You know, you might read this and it might feel like I am living on the precipice at all times, but that doesn't feel true to my reality, like uh, my day-to-day reality. It's just it's, it's sort of maybe where I go in order to find a certain uh, tension to create the poems. Yeah, I think so. And I think sometimes our anxieties are what makes art. I mean, so does joy. Joy definitely makes mm-hmm. art. Like in the poem Balcony, there's there's a mm-hmm. sense of wanting to know what comes next and the idea that that can save you and is that thing that wants to show you its teeth and bite down waiting for you or can it save you? Balcony begins with uh, something I heard on the radio. Like it's, it's, you know, often a poem may begin with something that just sort of is in my daily life. I'll just sort of see it one moment and or hear or, you know, a bit of language or a memory that'll come back to me sort of unbidden and this was something i heard in the radio this this idea i thought it was really beautiful i mean you know suicide is one of the things that i um you know one of the subjects of my work 
uh, you know, my mother having committed suicide. And I'm not sure if it said the secret is simple, but the poem starts, the radio claims the secret is simple. Just always want to know what comes next to let that want pull you back from the ledge again and again. That's probably not the language that I heard on the radio, but there was something about that, that this idea of wanting to know what comes next can keep us alive. Uh, that, that sort of curiosity. Uh, and I, I think that that, that that rung true for me, that like that was like sort of a thing. Once you lose that curiosity, that something essential has been lost and, 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 and you're, in a, <laughs> you're in a very dark place. And so that, and that led into this other story about, you know, uh, someone who would, uh, you know, drink and, and try to keep themselves from hurting themselves. And then it ends with this this image of at the end of the one promise I can make is that I'm staying. It, it's not clear. It's, it's very indeterminate who I'm even talking to at that point. Even though it knocks on our door at night, our door at night has it. It's hard only my getting lost. Uh, even though some part of it wants me dead, which is why I see it with a stick. You know, I, I think it, it is. I think it's an attempt to recognize that there's this thing inside us. Not maybe not inside everyone. I don't know. I have no idea. Actually, I mean, that's why I read other people's poetry or go to see art, go see films or, or anything, just sort of get a, get a glimpse of like what it's like to be someone else, uh, to have some sort of a feeling and, and, and to maybe see some connection, you know, maybe some empathetic connection or uh, some sort of uh, correspondence so, so that it doesn't seem so lonely. So this idea that, that there's maybe something inside that's a little, uh, that, that's frightening and dangerous, you know, that's kind of wild. Could be that, that thing, I, I'm sort of thinking about your question, when I'm, as I'm talking, uh, it could be that that wildness is the thing that keeps you alive, actually, at some point. It's like when you uh, get lost in the wilderness. There was someone else I heard on the radio that said that there was something when he was he was a priest of some sort. I have it written down somewhere, but he was a priest. And he got, and at some moment of deep emotional despair, he sort of realized that there was just this one sort of wildness, this sort of like this sort of wild animal like in the wilderness that only had this one instinct, which was to stay alive. And that could be maybe what you're talking about. Maybe that's what you see. I didn't, I've never really seen that in poems. Like, the poems are mysterious to me also. Like, it feels to me, like when I read it, it feels really just like something you should avoid. This thing, this, this darkness is on a, on, a, on a leash and you, you're a little, it'll, it'll attack you if you let it. But it also could be a thing that keeps you alive. That's interesting that you said that. I'm curious about your thoughts about kind of aloneness and connection in the world from from your poem Sleeping Beauty I got this sense uh-huh. you were saying in a way we can't bring each other we can't bring people down with us maybe sometimes we want to because everyone can be in that maybe low place with us but we can't do that and so mm-hmm. maybe being there alone is even harder and ultimately we are alone and we're being searching for connection the cover of the book has my daughter on it when she was seven. This sort of amazing photograph of her dancing with a giant bat slash bear by a waterfall. It's like, and, and sort of that was sort of the beginning of all these poems. Uh, was that moment in some ways? Poems sort of like burst from that moment. And the poem Sleeping Beauty. You know, when you have a child, if you're lucky, you get to sort of read a lot of fairy tales. Or you get to revisit fairy tales that you sort of vaguely remember as a child. And, having been read to you if you were lucky and, and then you sort of get to revisit them and see this ongoing thing. And this again, like this sort of continuation of, of eternity. So with Sleeping Beauty, I got to read and just sort of, and, and so always being surprised by these uh, fairy tales that, that and, the, and the poem begins, that, I, I didn't really get it, that Sleeping Beauty, she finds a, I, I'd forgotten she finds a spindle. So the poem begins, when Sleeping Beauty finds a spindle and pricks her finger and falls into her hundred year sleep, everyone around her falls as well. The handmaids, the grooms, the cooks, dogs collapse in the courtyard, horses fold in on themselves in the hay. I'd forgotten all that. And then the next line is, even the fire returns to embers, fire's version of sleep. 
reading that, reading the, the fairy tale to my daughter, I'd be like, wow, it just, I, I didn't realize that everyone else fell asleep as well. Like I, that to me had been lost. I'd, I'd lost that whole part of the, the, the uh, story. And maybe it's lost in the Disney version too. I'm not really sure. I think Disney owns all these fairy tales now. So I, they'll probably sue me for this poem. But in, in the version that I read, this is what happens. Everybody falls asleep. So she falls asleep and then everyone wakes up when she wakes up, which, I, which just seems like such a strange reality. And, and, I started to go into this thing in the uh, poem. I just sort of, to me, it sort of felt like a, a solution to grief. The next line after it, after Fire's version of sleep, in some tellings, all this sleep is a blessing, a solution to grief. No one will miss her because they will sleep as long as she sleeps, and they will wake when she wakes, no one having felt a thing. So that idea of like the, the princess basically dies in a way, falls asleep, Everyone else falls asleep, so they don't have to feel. They don't have to feel. And to me, that was also, again, there's a lot of addiction that goes through this book. And the idea of addiction to me seems, does seem like a type of sleep, but so does any kind of addiction. You know, watching too much television is an addiction. Uh, you know, being obsessed with something in the news can be an addiction. You know, anything, exercise, anything can be an addiction. And it feels like that, like this, this again, it's like this thing, like, so it's not to feel, because it feels like the feelings will be too much. The emotional state will be too much. So a lot of, like, my meditation practice is just to sort of sit with the feeling and to, and to see what happens and just allow the feeling to sort of, you know, wash through you, pass over you, just observe it as it floats by. Uh, and not to go to sleep, not to like sort of get to the end of your life and feel like you've slept, walked through it all. Uh, so I think there is a lot of that in this book also. There was a sense I got too from a few of the poems one was see-through, uh-huh. the way that words limit us and fail us and sometimes even silence us. This is about a, a death of of a black man in society. Maybe it was a news story you heard. But as uh-huh. you got deeper into the poem, it felt like you were also talking about our inability to express ourselves at times or, or the rage or the, the injustice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, a lot of the book is about that, about the limits of language. The poem See-Through in particular uh, is, you know, there's a note in the back which says, in 2016 in Charlotte, North Carolina, Keith Lamont Scott, 43-year-old father, became the 194th black person killed by the police in the United States that year. And so the poem came out of that experience of hearing about this and, and the, the sheer horror of 194 people at that moment in August of that year. Yeah, we have this thing at the end where we, the Buddhists come in again as we sort of talked a little bit about, you know, the, the situation of his killing near the end of the poem. The Buddhists talk a lot about skillful speech. They say the man says a word, then the word says a word, then the word says the man. And pretty soon all the world we can't define with words stops existing. Maybe we all stop existing when it stops existing. So, I mean, that, that, that is a thing. Like, the more I, I write, you know, I've been you know, the more I engage with language, it's a very strange thing. Like one would think maybe that it would go more deeply into this sort of amazing abstraction that's been created, just these little uh, uh, marks on a page, you know, uh, you know shapes on a page that, that somehow when they fit together, they form uh, a sound in someone else's mind that gives them an image that somehow evokes a feeling with it and rises up. It's such, it's such a strange world. It gets, just gets stranger and stranger the more I, the more I engage with it. And also the more I engage with it, I, I, I do start to worry that there's a, there's a thing in, in, you know, my therapist has pointed out, and I guess it's a therapist saying the narrative affect disorder, where 
where someone who's gone through trauma will create a story, and sometimes they call it in trauma studies, the, you know, the cover story. They'll create a story which somehow will contain some sort of a palatable version of the trauma uh, that's maybe a little bit funny or maybe a little bit uh, uh, subdued or somehow doesn't have the complete intensity to it uh, that allows one to sort of like sort of acknowledge the trauma but then not fully feel it so you don't have the affect connected to it. You have a narrative but there's no affect connected to it. And I think that can be a, a way of being asleep also. You sort of create a story that allows you to go on but it actually doesn't allow you to get through it in some way or to process it in, in, a, in a way that's healthy. It just sort of, it sort of almost holds it in a, in a space. So a lot of it, a lot of the book is, you know, my, this book, and then there's a sister book that's coming out next year, which also sort of goes over a lot of the same material, but in prose form. And a lot of it is sort of trying to wrestle with that, like what it is to try to write something that doesn't fall into that narrative aspect disorder. Yeah, that's been, that's been a project for the last few years, sort of a, uh, in the background of these poems. I think, too, poetry is so much about evoking feeling, or at least that's kind of the end product when people read it, regardless of how you wrote it. And another poem that you wrote about that I thought also got to where language maybe fails us, and it's in the title, is the word feeling, if only they could bottle this feeling. If you want to read it, too, it's pretty short. Sure, I'll read that poem. If only they could bottle this feeling. Pages torn from magazines, taped to the wall. A sunset, a puppy, a tree in a field. All of it more real than these words. Our kiss stretched a wire from your hands to my skull. I fell inside, mouth first, head first. If I was made of paper, I'd have burst into flame. If only they could bottle this feeling, I thought. And then they did. Yeah, it's nice to read that. I, I, it's not a poem that I've read yet. You know, I'm a little, you know, doing some readings from the book lately. This is one that I haven't read yet. Uh, and uh, so I'm glad. Thanks for asking me to read it. What did you get out of it? There are some things that you can't say. It almost reminds me in some ways like going to a comfortably numb place that's also joyful and maybe scary all at once and that you just can't describe it and then at the end you found this thing it's kind of like the irony that isn't the irony it's it's like when Flannery O'Connor says the ending should be inevitable and surprising at the same time it's kind of like Mm -hmm. oh yeah of course yeah I like that that expression you know if only they could bottle this feeling it's an expression right that's like a thing people say have you heard that Oh, yeah. But I, I thought it's such a strange expression, especially for an alcoholic, because it's like, well, that's the whole point of alcohol, right? They have bottled the feeling. You, you, that's why you go back to it. You go and you go buy it. You know what you're going to feel in some way. You know, you know that it's going to do that thing that you want it to do. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the feeling that you get from it very quickly, if you're an alcoholic, becomes, uh, uh, you know, numbness, it becomes non-feeling, it becomes the opposite. Uh uh, and so that's the, the sort of paradox in that. Um, yeah, and it's sort of, you know, combining that with sort of the sexual energy, like, you know, this uh, um, sense like this, the sexual ecstasy and feeling like, well, how could I contain this moment and just hold on to it forever? Uh, and then realizing that it's, that's, that desire is, is sort of what leads you to uh, uh, into uh, 
further into some sort of uh, uh, darkness or uh, it's, it's that very desire to sort of hold on to something. I guess what you would call before the clinging, you know, which is a word I use too in the poems, I guess, is what sort of can lead to uh, disaster. It makes me think a little bit about the layers within things like both, you know, there's a lot of layers in alcohol once you start using it or drugs when you start using it, which mm-hmm. in turn reveals all the layers of ourselves. And there's something I noticed in, in two of these poems that connected them for me that I will try to articulate. It's challenging. But in The King of Fire, you were talking a little bit about sort of our bodies are not singular, that maybe we inside of our body is us when we were five, when we were 10, when we were 15, that we sort of carry every person we've manifested in this one body. So there was a a lack of singularity. And Mm -hmm. I also connected that kind of to, to the poem tattoo where you're talking about Mm -hmm. holding on to everyone that you've ever been with or loved and how they are a part of you. And so both Mm -hmm. made me think, and it's not, they are not singular incidences either in your poetry where you're kind of talking about how many selves live inside of ourselves and how many other people also live inside of us at once. Yeah, that's, that's the thing too. I guess it, it, it comes from, you know, just from age or from, I mean, I think, I think young people feel it too, that sort of, you know, connection to everything and how, you know, it's almost becomes like a, like a, a hive mind, it's sort of collective consciousness, this Jungian collective consciousness that we're in that, that moment of like, you know, coincidence or when you, you think of someone, they call you or and, and these things that happen to us. I'm, I'm okay with the mystery of it, like not really knowing what, what that means or, or how it's done, but just having a sense that there's like something larger that connects us in a way that's, that's almost impossible to uh, articulate. That if we if we could actually articulate it, it would be not as enormous. It's like it's like a fish swimming in water. Like we don't even recognize the water we're swimming in because it's like that's the only reality we know. So that connection to, to all of that, how we're connected to our past selves and to our future selves and to the person next to us, and I have this deep connection to my daughter because she's cellularly part of me. So does that end with the neighbor that's next door? Do I have not have that connection with the neighbor next door? Do I not have it with the you know with someone in Syria, or is it? When does it stop? When does that connection stop? Is, is a, a a question that I think is uh, not not clear. It's not it's not really clear. Like you know, we, we know that there's a the Buddhist and and like you know DNA says that you know you are literally half of your mother and half of your father. The DNA is like half and half on a, on a very basic level of that. And just sort of we're, you know the stars and the universe and the stuff we're made of. So, you know, all those questions come up. I think with with uh, poetry, and it's one of those things that you can't difficult to walk around with thinking all the time like that connection but it's also it, it can be a beautiful thing to walk around and realize like it can, it can lift you from being you know too self-centered and too like the you know solipsistic and too uh like feeling like alone too you know one example i have that i i like that i i, I ride my bicycle every day in new york city i live in brooklyn i ride over the bridge the brooklyn bridge a lot which makes no sense because the brooklyn bridge is very crowded with tourists and all the tourists have never been on the bridge before there's a bike lane and a pedestrian lane there were times like i can see other bikers too that are much angrier than i am you know they'll ride they'll sort of yell at people like you know get out of the bike lane and you know i used to sort of like be annoyed with people biking like, now like I, I really like several years ago i just stopped i'm like this it just makes no sense which is like i would really have this sense like going over the bridge that that 
somehow on a deep level that the bridge was mine, that the Brooklyn Bridge was mine and these people were on my bridge. And then I realized, wait a minute, this bridge isn't mine. Like I'm this is I'm one piece of this. They they belong here as much as I do, you know, which is <laughs> like a, a Whitman uh, moment I realize as I say that. Uh, and uh, you know, that that sort of transcendental connection to everything. Uh, when you put it into practice and walk through the world in that way, it it actually does. That's as close as I've come to joy, you know, in in these moments. Yeah, I think too. What that you know makes me makes me think about is you know how many unseen humans add up to the events of our lives. You know, how many people who worked on that bridge brought you to this day, and yeah. what I saw on on maybe the flip side of that throughout some of your poems was the idea of of hauntings of being haunted your mother's certainly in there who died by suicide but can you talk a little bit about the idea of hauntings you know my mother has been a, every book that i've written i keep telling myself like okay, i've finished writing about that i'll move on to something else you know it really hasn't happened she, she appears again in this book and in the next book um i think there are certain uh there's certain events, like I think uh, Jung says, as long as uh, an image is alive, it keeps spinning off meaning. For me, my mother, both you know, in all aspects of her, her nurturing, beautiful, vivacious self, and her the dark, you know, annihilator self, seem to still have uh, energy in my psyche. Uh, and I, you know, you just have to respect that. I feel, you know, I feel one could. I, I don't. I don't see that. I think it would be a sickness. It would cause some sort of sickness to to turn away from that if it's if that's just the truth. Uh, if the energy if it keeps spinning off meaning, that's that's the reality, and you you honor that. Uh, I feel that's what we, we need to do to honor this sort of that 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 reality. Um, yeah, I feel that like each of us, a lot of it comes from childhood. We have these little moments that become these these uh, archetypal moments in our lives that that we will sort of wrestle with for our entire lives. You know, some people, some of my younger students who will say like, well, I don't have anything to write about. It's hard for me to say because I, you know, I did have these sort of like large traumatic events that happened in my life. Uh, you know, my mother's suicide, my father's homelessness. They're also very simple everyday events also in many ways in, in that it's just sort of like that we all try to understand our parents, whether our parents are there or not there, uh, whether we grew up with our parents or, we never met our parents or, you know, we're always trying to understand where we come from. And I think that is on a basic like cellular level. We want to know who we are, but seeing the good and the bad, like not seeing it as one thing or another, like one could, you know, there's, there's ways that one can look at my mother as this very negative influence, but I don't really see it that way. I really see this as incredibly positive. I was, my daughter is now going to middle school. She's 11 and uh, she, her backpack is huge. It's just it's, New York City, the Brooklyn bus to school. It's like, it, it just seems all sort of like, like wild. Like that she takes a bus and on the backpack, it's so heavy. And her back hurts. I'm like, I just, I'm like, oh my God, you're 11 and you have back pain. So I was like massaging her back this morning. Um, and I was just remembering that my mother used to massage my back when I was a kid. Like that was a thing that she did. It's just, I, I don't even know if I had back pain in the same way, but she would like come and massage my back. It was just this sort of beautiful connection. And and doing that to my daughter now just felt this sort of like, uh, you know, time like folding in on itself and, and spiraling around in this way that was, that was really beautiful and moving. So It's interesting hearing, hearing your story about that and reading 
your poetry because another theme that goes through it is is fatherhood and you have one poem in there where you're kind of saying like basically if your kid dies you can drink again so there's there's not this idea that she's tethering you but it just seems that fatherhood i mean obviously it's fraught you have your own history with your father and your mother um, but it, it's definitely a consumptive idea throughout the book, just being a father and what it means. Yeah, it's a, you know, but that's the thing. Like, the, it's a, I don't know if you'd call it a roll of the dice or something, but it doesn't, you know, getting married or becoming a father, none of this, like, necessarily leads one to a better life. Uh, you know, it's a, everything is a daily practice, like showing up for it every day. Like, you know, my father, you know, my father's a father and he is like, just went completely off the rails. Uh, and I know many, you know, situations I know, you know, my mother was a mother and her life went off the rails. It's not like in and of itself, just like that fatherhood would be a grounding situation. Uh, and I, you know, I, I was deeply aware of that and very actually a, a bit terrified of that becoming a father. Like, this is not a, this is not the thing. I had a friend, I had a friend, uh, many years ago, about 15 years ago, I bought a house. I had some money from a book I wrote, and I, I bought a house in upstate New York. And a friend of mine who had, who had also bought a house told me, uh, you know, in all, and I'm, I'm sure this reality is completely true for him, he said, you're going to have, your, your life is going to change once you own this house. You're going to own a piece of the earth, and it's going to, like, you're going to be grounded, and you're going to feel like this sort of connection to everything. And I felt none of that. Like, I, it was like, it was not like, I was like, yeah, that's, that didn't happen. Like, I barely spent it. I, I, I barely spent a night in this house. It, it, so, so people have their own reality. I believe that was true for him. I believe, like, for some people, becoming a father is just to become that person and it, it, it all goes well. For me, I sort of knew that that was not, especially from the experience of buying a house, but it was something that I'd have to really make into a daily practice and to show up for you know, every day in a conscious way and to, and to uh, really hold on to it. That's the thing, like, it's the beautiful thing about poetry or the, the slippery thing about poetry and about any writing, I think, is that how much do you, does one hold on to, like, that this is the central reality of the narrator of the poem? Like, it's a dark poem. This poem is, like, twisted. Can you read something from an author that speaks to or influenced you as a writer? Sure, I, I I was just going to read a little passage from Sarah Mangusso. She's a writer I admire very much. This is a book called Ongoingness, subtitled The End of a Diary. It's about her writing a diary for 25 years and then sort of ending it when uh, she had a child. For months, the baby woke at 7, fed, fell asleep at 8.30, woke at 10, fed, fell asleep at 11.30, and so on for the rest of the day. I'd made him into a milk clock. Every hour... As part of a ritualized ceremony of adding or subtracting milk, a river, of, a river of milk flowed in and out and around him. He floated down the milk river toward the rest of his life. One explanation for the loss of preverbal memories maintains that after acquiring language, one forgets how to access those preverbal memories. As I watched the baby play with his toys, I remembered an orange plastic panel fixed to the rails of my own crib. A round red rubber air bladder the size of my fingertip, a bell, a black and white crank that clicked, a blue and red sphere that spun fast in its housing and looked purple. My brain had stored this memory, all the textures and colors and shapes and sounds. If you had asked me six months earlier if it were possible to retain infant memories into adulthood, I would have said no. 
But I carried this memory without looking at it for 38 years. Tell me more about why you chose that. I mostly know her for her essays, lyric essays, memoir, books, and everything I read. I just find her mind to be uh, really fascinating. Like the way she uh, will sort of take, you know, a moment. She does that thing that any great sort of memoirist or, or even a poet does. Uh, you take like a, a seemingly small moment. I mean, it might not be small. It's like big, like her first, one of her early, one of her early books is uh, uh, Two Types of Decay, which is about a, a blood disease she had for I'm not sure, a year or two years. And uh, this moment of going to the hospital, she just repeats that she goes back to the hospital to get a transfusion, to get her blood checked, to be sitting in a chair. And it's like, in, in some ways, it's very mundane. It's something you would, maybe you would, if you were, you know, we've all sort of been to the doctor and sat there, like, but to, to extract like this beautiful memoir out of this sort of moment that could sort of be an in-between moment, like a moment where the big thing isn't happening. You're just getting checked for the big thing or you're being, you know, you're waiting to get to your life after this big thing. She'll sort of take that and like, just sort of honor it in this way. And she's doing it again with this, with this, this, just like feeding the baby and just like having this and sort of realizing her memories that she's doing this. I, I just find it really, uh, uh, I, I'm just with her. I'm, I'm in her interior life in a way that makes me feel you know, very happy. Earlier you were mentioning the poem that was really hard for you to write, and that's a question I asked. So can you talk about something that was hard to write for you and then share a little bit about why? There's a level of difficulty, such a difficulty with almost every poem. But um, So you had mentioned earlier the poem to be whispered by the bedside of a sleeping child, the one where I'm, I'm negotiating the death and the life of my child and drinking. Poem to be whispered by the bedside of a sleeping child. Here's the deal. If you die, and I will be able to drink again, and no one alive will even blame me. This child is a dark wind inside, but not the darkest. Then I think, I'll have another child, a backup, in another city, with another woman, just in case. Then I think, I'll call this home to be whispered by the bedside of a sleeping child. So when you're older, you'll understand. Then I think, this isn't even a poem. So it's a poem that, that it, it, it's, it's, you know, sort of pushes into for me into this sort of strange, you know, I'm not sure if other people have, you know, strange, dark thoughts that blow through them. But when I read this poem out loud, which I, you know, I resisted it for a while, uh, you know, actually bringing it forward. But then um, I think it has a certain cadence to it that that works well for reading and when people listen to it and actually take it in I, I get this very uh i get a reaction that i really appreciate there'll just be sort of very awkward laughter and, and the, the laughter to me feels like a laughter of like, like some kind of a recognition of of a a truth that isn't spoken often that like you know that we're negotiating maybe or, or an addict negotiating with like okay if this happens i can do this Okay, I'll I'll stay sober as long as you give me this. Like, which is, you know, it's a strange thing to admit to to admit that there's this sort of like internal negotiations going on, and then going into this other thing of thinking like, okay, well, if you die, then maybe I should have. If, if there's a chance that, you know, the child will die, then maybe I should prepare for that by setting up an entire other life somewhere and having another child so I can just sort of jump over to that if this child died. You know, it, none of it makes any sense. It's all uh, it's all this interior, like, dreamscape of, 
uh, <laughs> that, that doesn't make sense that somehow I, I find like, you know, not everyone, I think, I think probably half the room, if I read to them, half the room is sort of like, you know, either doesn't get it, maybe just maybe divide into thirds, you know, a third doesn't get it, one third is sort of disgusted by it, and one third identifies with it. Uh, and I can hear those, and I, and I like all those people, like I, I appreciate that all those people exist in the room. Uh, but I really appreciate the ones that laugh awkwardly at, at inappropriate moments in the poem. So, because then, then I feel a little less, uh, a little less crazy. Where do you write? It depends upon what part of a process I'm in. Uh, like often for like early generative material, which is like sort of a, which feels like we're really sort of like crossing into some surprising place and bringing back something. I do. I've been doing a lot of that lately in these workshops, like the workshop I taught in Aspen. I. I I set it up as a sort of like real sort of a, a, a contained space to sort of explore the subconscious realm. You know, we meditate, we do like various sort of exercises. We sort of that are all meant to sort of disrupt our conscious thinking. And I'll participate in that with them. I'll, 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 I'll you know, in order to, you know, make sure that things are working, I'll, I'll join along with them. So I do, I've done a lot of the writing that generates that. It, 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 we generate a lot of work in those weeks and then we do something with it. We end up sort of, trying to craft something out of it in a few days. It's, it's really intense and it moves very quickly. And it, it's, it's sort of, uh, I find it very thrilling and exhausting. So that's, I'll, I'll, I'll do those in workshops. I'll do those, you know, I'll, I'll teach these workshops a few times a year and do those in those workshops. And then I'll leave that and I'll work on the work that we generated in those workshops for the next couple of months. Uh, and that'll be a process of sort of like thinking, making other connections with it and, pulling in other threads and sort of examining things. And then that could happen in cafes or something. I, I, I like writing in cafes at certain points with people around me. And then at a certain point, I'll have to go into like sort of a little more private space, like into like a, I have a writing space in Brooklyn that I go to and uh, I can just sort of like really just be focused on the work and not have any distractions around me. So it depends on where I am in the process. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, every, you know, we talked about that earlier. Uh, everything that I do that isn't writing is like and I'm trying to make writing be life also but like I, I do a lot to like much of my life like the, the writing time the creative deep writing time like on a normal day like right now I'm in the middle of some projects so like things are, I could have, have to work all day so I'll have very little time to get away but on like a normal you know normal writing day I'll, I'll everything else I'll do I'll, I'll go to I'll, I'll you know meet a friend for coffee I'll do my my things that, that keep me and, and uh, on track, which you talked about earlier. Um, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to a dumb movie with a friend, uh, the usual stuff. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, well, he said early feedback will, you know, maybe be in those workshops. So, you know, if I have an assistant, I'll work with the assistant in the workshop. If I, you know, sometimes I'll just turn to the person that um, one of the other writers in the workshop and we'll just talk about our work that we just generated that moment. But then, I don't have like a writing group at the moment. I have had for many years that writing group, but I don't have one now, or I haven't had one for actually quite a few years. So I have an agent and I have an editor, and those are the people that end up seeing the work and I have conversations with. How have you dealt with rejection? That you know happens all the time and happens all the time still. Uh, I try to just notice it, notice how I feel about it, recognize that it's just you know, you know, it, 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 everything balances out. Like it eventually, like and, and there's there's ways I've dealt with it differently over the years. Like you know, early on, it can feel a lot harder, but once you've sort of done a few things, that you, you recognize it, it. It's almost 
it's just interesting. And I appreciate it, actually. I appreciate, like, if someone doesn't want to publish work I do, usually I'll look back at it and realize, I'll think it's maybe, you know, I usually won't send something else unless I think it's good. But usually if someone doesn't want to publish it, I'll look at it and say, oh, yeah, I'm actually appreciative that this didn't get published or this wasn't the right place for it. So I, I'm, you know, I, I've become, I think, uh, pretty uh, okay with it. And what is your favorite word? No, I thought about that too. You'd asked me that too. And uh, I think I think for today, I'm, I'm going to say uh, paprika. Do you like paprika? I, well, I can like that. I don't, I don't cook with it so much, but I, you know, now that I'm mentioning it right now, I would, uh, maybe I'll go have some after this, some, some, some Hungarian paprika uh, on some toast. Uh, that wouldn't, that sounds pretty good. Uh, I like, I like the word though. It has a little, it has kind of music to it, you know, it's like three syllables. It, it goes up in the middle. It's, uh, it's got a nice, like, it's got a range of, of, of soft and hard sounds to it. It pops a couple times. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. Yeah. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Nick Flynn, author of the poetry collection, I Will Destroy You. And if you like today's show, check out my interview with Joshua Moore, where he talks about his memoir, Sirens, about his years of living with addiction and hitting rock bottom in San Francisco. You can find the entire archive of interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips, and ad-free, plea-free content. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. One of the extras you will receive from this interview with Nick Flynn will be his comments about why practices like meditation or going to therapy are essential to his writing process. There will be additional cuts and writing tips from other interviews running this month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming up on the next few episodes are interviews with Amitav Ghosh and Leslie Jameson. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.